Well, we've been continuing in a series, of course, about uh, moments with the Master. And as we do so, I want to go back and just quickly review last Sunday so we kind of get on the same page and moving forward. Um, we looked at uh, the woman at the well from John chapter 4. And uh, in Jesus' conversation with this woman, he leads her right into the discussion on worship and offers her living water described there in verse 14 of John chapter 4. And, and from that passage, we learn some things about uh, worship, that God, first of all, desires your worship. God gave you life and He sustains your life for one supreme purpose, to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. And that's why we exist. And another thing we learned about worship is that worship begins in salvation. The woman didn't truly worship until her spirit was made alive by the Holy Spirit through that life-giving words of Jesus and was drawn by the Spirit of Christ. And so when we come to God and and we receive salvation, then that that begins our time of worship and glorifying Him. And uh, the third thing we learned about worship was that it has to do with real life. It's not just inside these walls. It's not just in, in moments like this but it's outside to where we go and everyday life, and who we run into. And it's, it's when we encounter Christ on, on a daily basis, the Monday through the Saturdays. And I trust that your Monday through Saturday, you were experiencing worship with, with God. Because when you do so and you focus on that and try to see where God is in your life and in all the different aspects of your life, then you come to a day like today and this moment is so much more enhanced when we, when we worship Monday through Saturday. And then the fourth thing we learned about worship is that it must engage our heart as well as our head. Some of us are on the emotional part of it, and we just love just to feel God. Some of us are on the intellectual part of it, and we just love the doctrine and just the truth of God's Word. But that needs to come together. And we need to be able to worship God in that way, spirit and truth, both together. So don't check out on the richness of, of doctrine and truth. Don't check out on the fullness of that in, the inward feelings that reflect the worth of God's glory. So that com- coming together as we worship God, we come together in, in, uh, with our heart and our head and uh, have a, a full, true moment of, of worship. So those are some things we looked at last Sunday and... Uh, when uh, the woman at the well had her moment with the Master. And today we come to another moment with the Master in Luke chapter 19. And so if you'll turn there, we'll be looking at the first 10 verses there. Familiar portion of Scripture, and when you turn to it, you're going to go, oh, I want to sing a little Sunday school song. (laughs) We won't, don't worry, but you can do it in your mind and and have uh, have it continue on in your mind throughout the service, I guess. But uh, it's where we, where we see a small man who meets a big Savior and a moment that uh, hopefully will be remembered as well, too, in a different way by you. There's a story about a local fitness center which was offering $1,000 to anyone who could demonstrate that they were stronger than the owner of the place. Now, here's how it worked. This muscle man would squeeze a lemon until all the juice ran into a glass and then hand the lemon to the next challenger. Anyone who could squeeze just one more drop of juice out out of that lemon would win the money. Now, many people tried over time. Other weightlifters, construction workers, even professional wrestlers came. 
but nobody could do it. And one day, a short and skinny guy came in and signed up for the contest, and after the laughter died down, the owner grabbed a lemon, squeezed away at it, and then he handed the wrinkled remains to the little man. And the crowd's laughter turned to silence as the man clenched his fist around the lemon and six drops fell into the glass. As the crowd cheered, the manager paid out the winning prize and asked the short guy what he did for a living. You lumberjack, weightlifter, what? What's going on here? The man replied, I work for the IRS. <laughs> I hope your tax filing went well last month. <laughs> and you probably felt a few drop squeeze out of your income when <laughs> you did. But for Becky and I, we got a, an interesting blessing, a pleasant surprise that made us a bit cautious. <laughs> Our federal re re refund check that came back to us was twice the amount that we thought we were going to get. So I look at this, I'm going, is this real? <laughs> I'm not going to cash this or deposit this until we know for sure, because, you know, Uncle Sam likes to get uh, back what is, is not ours, and, and so he wants that. So we contacted our tax person, and, uh, and she said, oh, she forgot that we had paid uh, the estimated tax payment last year. And so that helped us. And so, okay, we can deposit it. Thank you. <laughs> so we were cautious, though. We didn't want to deposit that until we were sure. But, so, you know, some people, they don't care. Some people think, well, maybe we can get a little bit more. How can we cut the edges here? How can we skirt around some of the rules and all that? And sometimes it's tough to be honest during tax time. And here's an actual letter that was received by the IRS a few years ago. It says, in close, you will find a check for $150. I cheated on my income tax return last year and have not been able to sleep ever since. If I still have trouble sleeping, I'll send you the rest. So some people, some people might have a conscience in that way. But uh, yeah, this, this morning we're focusing on a high-ranking IRS man who cheated not on his return, but on everyone else's. He had figured out a way to skim some money off the top and squeeze the last drop from people's wallets. Now, as we look at uh, Luke chapter 19, the first verse, we see that Jesus is passing through Jericho on his final trip to Jerusalem and comes in contact with Zacchaeus, a very wealthy government man from the top rung of the economic ladder, in another moment with the master. And uh, looking at verses 2 through 4, <clears throat> we'll pick up from there. We see Zacchaeus as this searching sinner. Zacchaeus as this searching sinner. Look with me in verses 2 through 4. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. So in verse 2, we see that Zacchaeus was a man of some prominence. His name in Hebrew actually means pure and righteous, but he was not that of, uh, at all, as being anywhere close to righteous because of the job he had. As a tax collector, he worked for Rome and was considered a traitor by the Jewish people. And the fact that he worked for the Roman IRS indicated to others that he was more interested in money than anything else. And Zacchaeus was more than just an IRS agent. He was also a chief tax collector. He was in charge of all the agents and was able to take a cut of commission from those who collected taxes for him. He stood on top of the collection pyramid, if you will, 
stuffing his pockets with shekels before he sent the required taxes to Rome. And if Rome charged a 5% tax, he may have collected 10% from the people. And Jericho was a great place to be for Zacchaeus because there's a lot of people coming in and out of the city on their way then to Jerusalem, and especially for the Passover. <clears throat> and Jericho was considered the, the tax capital of Palestine, the center of a vast trade network that extended from Damascus all the way to Egypt. And Zacchaeus was in charge of one of the three tax offices in the entire country and may have had the best job of them all. Not surprisingly, the last part of verse 2 tells us that he was wealthy. No kidding. If you did all that, I'm sure you would be too. But he was a renegade in the eyes of the religious people there. He would have been thought of as fondly as a high-level drug dealer today. <laughs> Not very fondly. In fact, in the minds of people, tax collectors were often linked with murderers, adulterers, robbers, and other sinners. Tax collectors were not uh, new to Jesus. Early on in His ministry, Jesus had attracted, and worse yet, in the eyes of the Pharisees, received them warmly. How could He do that? Why would He do that? <clears throat> and in Luke chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus was accused by the religious leaders uh, for eating drinking with those tax collectors and sinners. These two terms were almost synonymous to the Pharisees. There was hardly a life form more offensive than those traitors called tax collectors. And in verse 3, we notice that while Zacchaeus is very wealthy and successful by the world's standards, he knew something was missing. Something wasn't right. You know, and even today, People, if they are honest, will eventually admit that there's, a, there's more to life than just trying to make money, trying to obtain possessions. And maybe you've been there before, and you've realized that as well. And you had to come to a point saying, there's got to be more to this life than just this. And then Jesus came your way and said, hey, there is. And you listened, and you followed, and you received Him as Savior, and you've never been the same since then. But notice that it doesn't say that Zacchaeus just wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to see who Jesus was. <laughs> he wanted to figure out what it was that, that made Jesus different from everyone else. And he was drawn to this man who had just given sight to the blind beggar. Remember Bartimaeus? <clears throat> Out on the outskirts of Jericho. Now this healer was walking through his town. He had an opportunity to find out who this Jesus was, maybe. He may not have fully understood what was going on in his heart, but Zacchaeus had a desperate need to get to Jesus. He probably couldn't even explain what drew him to, to see who Jesus was. Maybe that's how some of you uh, have felt in the past. When you didn't know, you, know who, you heard about this Jesus, who is this guy, and you wanted to find out more. Maybe, maybe you're there today. And you don't know exactly who this Jesus is, but you've heard about him. And you want to know more about him. And you can't explain the draw that you have about it towards him, but you just you, you want to know more. Well, you're, maybe you're intrigued by who he is, and you, you, again, you just want to know more about him. Well, today you have that opportunity to be able to hear more about who this Jesus is and what he can do for you. And Zacchaeus had at least, though, two problems on that day. The first was that he, he was a short man. Wee little man, was he? 
Uh, can you picture him bouncing, bouncing up and down on his toes like Tigger, trying to get a, get a view of what's going on over the crowd, those taller guys standing in front of him? With all the crowds pressing in, there was no way for him to get close enough to see Jesus. In a large crowd like this, I wonder if some unhappy taxpayers <laughs> took out their frustrations with Zacchaeus by maybe giving him an accidental elbow or standing in front of him more, moving when he moved or whatever, and just not, you know, whatever. <clears throat> His second problem, though, was spiritual. Second problem was spiritual. His sins were keeping him from Jesus. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2 says that our iniquities have separated us from God. Not only was Zacchaeus of short stature, he, like us, was not able to measure up to God's standards. He came up far short in a spiritual sense of ever entering into a relationship with God. He was short on integrity and tall on sin. But if you look at verse 4, it says, So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now, this guy was resourceful. He knew what to do. He tried to use all the means he had to be able to get to Jesus. But he ran ahead of the crowd looking for a way that he could see Jesus. And this picture is probably a bit amusing, maybe a little comical possibly too. First of all, it would have been considered undignified for a rich man to run. You just didn't do it. If you're a rich man, don't do that. Secondly, it seems a bit funny that this wealthy man would shimmy up a tree to see Jesus. The sycamore trees often grew by the side of the road and had branches that grew out horizontally from the, from the trunk, which would then give him a good view of Jesus. He probably snagged his cloak on some branches, but it probably didn't slow him down at all in any way. Maybe he fell a couple times and, and tried to scramble to hang on. He was determined, though, to see Jesus and, and frankly, didn't care what others thought of his sprinting or his climbing of a tree. Zacchaeus didn't allow anything, not the crowd, not his condition, to stand between him and his desire to see the Lord Jesus. What about you? Do you allow anything to stand in your way to get to know Jesus more? Do you care enough about the condition of your soul to pay whatever price is necessary to be right with God? Are you willing to turn from that uh, little pet sin, whatever it might be in your life? Are you ready to walk away from the crowd in order to see Jesus? Are you ready to run to Him? See, we, we can look at Zacchaeus and probably snicker and laugh and all that, but no, <laughs> there's some things about Zacchaeus that we could learn from. His intent to be there, to see Him, to know more about Him. How are we at that level? Then if you look at verse 5, we see Jesus the seeking Savior. Jesus the seeking Savior. In verse 5, it was really Jesus who was seeking Him. It says, when Jesus reached the spot, He looked up and said to Him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately, I must stay at your house today. Now, if you're Zacchaeus, that probably would take you totally by surprise. <laughs> you're thinking, I'm pretty safe up here. No one's going to see me, and I can see him. Uh, not when it comes to Jesus. <laughs> As Jesus took note of Zacchaeus, although we're not told why. He stopped, he looked up, 
he called him by name and told him that he must come to his house. Now we see that while Jesus has set his face toward the cross, remember, he's headed that direction and he's got bigger things going on. But he stops and ministers to a searching sinner, Zacchaeus. He knew right where Zacchaeus was because he knew all about him. And he was filled with compassion toward him. And this is how it always happens. Jesus makes the first move by coming to the dead sinner and offering life, offering life everlasting through himself. We would never be able to come to Jesus unless he came to us first, and he did. He loved us so much. He stayed on that cross for us even before we knew him. He then gives uh, Zacchaeus a command in two parts. The first part, come down immediately. Get out of that tree, Zacchaeus. Now, I don't know how he came down. doesn't say really too much, but if he just <laughs> fell out of the tree or whatever and right before Jesus. There's always a sense of urgency about following Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, it says, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week, now. Can you imagine what must have been going through the minds of those who were walking with Jesus that day? How did Jesus know his name? Why did Jesus stop under that particular tree? Why did Jesus want this sinner to come down right away? What is he doing and then Jesus gives the second part of the command, I must stay at your house today. Why did Jesus express the need of going to the house of Zacchaeus? Why the, 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 the terminology must, I must. The, the Pharisees and religious leaders would, would say that because Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, he was a sinner. Such a person should never be invited to your home. One should certainly not enter their home as a guest, and you were especially forbidden to eat their food. So notice here that Jesus invited himself to dinner. He didn't wait for him to ask. I'm coming to your house. This is the only instance, and you can read through it, only instance in the four Gospels where we read of Jesus inviting himself to someone's home for a meal. All the other times he's invited Jesus must stay at his, at his house because it pictures what his ministry is all about. He came to save sinners from their sins. And here was one up in a tree that needed to hear more about who Jesus was. Then if you look at verses 6 through 10, we see uh, the moment. The moment with the Master, a spectacular salvation. Follow along with me in verses, verse 6 through 10. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Zacchaeus didn't waste any time getting out of that tree. Like I said, 
falling down out of that tree or climbing back down. Who knows? He didn't take, waste much time. Verse 6 again, so he came down at once, welcomed him gladly. Jesus said, jump. Zacchaeus jumped. <laughs> he came down right away and welcomed Jesus joyfully and with great excitement. He got way more than he asked for. He, he just wanted to get a closer look at the Savior, but now he was coming over for dinner. <laughs> oh, boy. He was overwhelmed with joy. The word gladly in that portion of Scripture there carries with it the idea of jubilant exultation. I don't know if he is dancing around or whatever, but I'm sure he had a pretty big grin on his face. This is similar to the response of uh, blind Bartimaeus receiving his sight uh, uh, a chapter before this in Luke chapter 18, when it says that he praised God. What will it take for us to become more filled with glad and joyful praise? There's a lot of things around us these days, the last couple of years, that can kind of squelch that. What would it take for us to be more filled with glad and joyful praise? With all that God has done for us, we should be exuberant with joy. Yet too often, our faces are fallen. Our, our hearts are, are heavy. Our minds are, are muddled with cares concerns. And, you know, there are a lot. I understand that. But we need to learn from this example. When people encountered Jesus, <laughs> the difference He makes in our lives. They broke out in joyful praise. That should be reflected in our daily lives. And when we gather together for corporate worship, we should be ready, praising God for who He is. Now, in contrast to, to Zacchaeus' joy, we see in verse 7 that the entire crowd began to mutter. If the crowd was confused about why Jesus was even talking to Zacchaeus, they now go ballistic when they figure out that Jesus has invited himself to dinner at Zacchaeus' place. What is he thinking? Going to that guy's place. You know what that guy did to us? Notice that it wasn't just some of the crowd. The text says that it was all the people. All the people. May have even included the disciples, possibly. The word itself means a low grumble, uh, and it indicates that they were complaining and finding fault with what Jesus was going to do. This root word is also used to describe what the Israelites did in the desert when they complained and grumbled to the Lord. So the same thing going on here. What is Jesus doing? Can't believe it. We might want to scold the crowd for the response, but I wonder how many times we respond in a similar way. What is Jesus doing? Doesn't He see what's going on around us right now? Doesn't He see that that person needs more judgment than grace? <laughs> Let's admit it, we have categories in our minds of people who are really bad. We, think, we, we hear about it on the news, or maybe we even have a neighbor or two that we're like, oh, my word. We might be upset if Jesus were to drop in on them for a meal as well. It's so easy for us to think that we're better than others, that our sin, our sin somehow smells better than other people's. 
But you know what? Sin stinks, <laughs> no matter what. And we need to see these things through Jesus' eyes, realizing where that person's at. They need Jesus to come over and have dinner with them. They need that moment. After the meal and conversation with Jesus, we see then in verse 8 that Zacchaeus was greatly impacted by the call in his life. Because what he is about to say, I think we can safely conclude that Zacchaeus was converted during the meal. <laughs> he knew he was a sinner and had come to the Savior for salvation. His conversion is clear because of the life change, that life change we see. Zacchaeus pushes himself away from the table and says to Jesus, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions, paying back four times the amount. The phrase, here and now, indicates that Zacchaeus was not waiting to negotiate a contract with Jesus <laughs> or was just trying to slide by. He was making a statement very boldly. He was fully sold out to Christ. And Jesus had changed his heart, and now he wanted to demonstrate that change through his actions. His decision was voluntary, and it flowed out of a, out of a, a heart of gratitude for what Christ had done for him. Whenever Jesus meets someone, there is change. There should be. There should be change. If you've never changed after you met Jesus, my question is, why not? <laughs> How come? Isn't there supposed to be a, a, a new creation, the Scripture tells us? The old has gone, the new has come. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, understood the importance of asking God to change him. Here's one of his prayers. He said, Lord, I give you everything there is in this man, William Booth. Do with me what you will. That's a dangerous prayer. If you're motivated to pray that prayer, be ready for the answer. God loves to hear prayers like this, though, because it shows a willingness change. Now, we're accustomed to having things the same. Oh, maybe, maybe you are, maybe you're not. La Rocco's are going to be facing a big old change here going to Connecticut. Familiar place, somewhat, but you've been out here for so long. <laughs> change is coming. And some people are okay with that. Some people just like things to be the same. Why change it? Why, why make things different? I like it the way it is. The thing is, is that Jesus is involved with you to bring about a change in your life. Who you were before you met Jesus shouldn't be the same as who you are now. As you grow in Christ and you follow Him and, and the different things He teaches you from His Word and, and being able to uh, uh, hear and put into practice what you hear, there should be a change in your life, a change that comes about and the willingness to change. Zacchaeus' public confession shows the sincerity of his repentance and was his way of living out what Romans chapter 10, verse 10 says. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As part of his repentance, Zacchaeus wants to right his wrongs. Biblical repentance always goes hand-in-hand hand with restitution because conversion 
is a radical life-changing event. You want to make things right. He's now a different man, so he declares that he will give half of his possessions to the poor and will make restitution at four times the amount he swindled. Four times. We only got twice as much as we thought on our tax return. <laughs> four times as much? Whoa, that would be something. The man who had felt small his whole life and had treated others as if they were small suddenly became a big man. Both of these responses stand out in light of cultural and religious expectations. It was considered extremely generous to give 20% of your money away. He gave 50%. Then he made restitution of four times. He was following the, the standard of, of, uh, required in the Jewish law when a sheep had been stolen and a man uh, was convicted of the theft, theft of a trial. You can check it up there in Exodus chapter 22, verse 1. He had to pay four times the amount. If he confessed it himself without being found out, he was only required to restore what was stolen and add 20%. You can check that out in Numbers chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Zacchaeus' repentance is obvious in that he was willing to respond as if it had been proved against him in a court of law. He confessed it, but he still said, you know, I was wrong, I'm still going to pay more than I need to in this. He knows that his behavior was of the worst kind and was eager to make things right, no matter the cost. You know, we sometimes think we're generous if we give God 10% of our income. <laughs> the mark of Zacchaeus' transformation and conversion was his staggering generosity. He learned the truth quickly that it is impossible to serve both God and money. Before he met Jesus, his money was everything to him. After his conversion, it took a back seat and became something to be given away. It was uh, uh, Albert Schweitzer who said, if you own something that you cannot give away, then you don't own it. It owns you. <laughs> How many possessions own you? But you look at verse 10. It says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. The mission of Jesus is very clear. He came to seek and save that which was lost. And Jesus is still on a search and save mission. He's looking. He's seeking. He's searching. He's seeking out people who need to be saved. And if you've never been saved from your sins, He's searching for you. You need to know that Jesus is pursuing you even if you're not pursuing Him. You know, He did that before you knew Him. He wants to have a vibrant relationship with you. Right now, He's outside the door of your life, and He's knocking. And He knocks, and, and then He waits for you to open the door. It's like Revelation talks about in chapter 3, verse 20. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now, when He knocks, He speaks your name out loud. He knows everything about you and has been pursuing a relationship with you for a long time. He knows your pain, He knows your dreams, and all the details of your life. He knows your failures, He knows your sins, He's seen and felt them all. And he's been trying to get your attention for so long, 
You may be hearing his voice right now in your heart, possibly. Just as he called out to Zacchaeus as well, he is calling out to you. Come to me right now, for I must come into your life. There are four stages, though, that we see here. It's a moment with this master that Zacchaeus went through, which have direct application to our lives today. First stage, being curious. Being curious. He wanted to get to know who Jesus was. Ran ahead, found that tree, got a good place to see who this Jesus was. A second stage, the moment with this master, considered, the considered stage. He investigated the claims of Christ. And then the third stage, converted stage. The searching Savior saved him and forgave his sins. And then the fourth stage, changed. He was changed. His life was radically redirected after his conversion. As I look back on the process that God had me go through, I, I see all four stages as well, too, in my life. I remember when I was curious during that class in Clackamas High School, my senior year during humanities, going through the different religions. I was curious about what this Christianity was, especially this virgin birth. That does not make sense. I've gone through health class. I know what, what that's all about. This doesn't make sense. Very curious about what God could do. Very curious about this man named Jesus. Very curious about the Ark of the Covenant. That kind of, uh, during the Raiders of the Lost Ark days, you know, and all that. And all that. And, and curious about those things and having a person come alongside me and be able to walk with me in this curiosity. To be able to investigate the claims of Christ, the considered stage. And that's when, again, my friend Greg was able to come alongside and and help me through all these different things and investigating the different uh, promises and, 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 and principles of God's Word and what this all meant. And, of course, the converted stage in, in August 12, 1986, Camp Baker, receiving Christ as my Savior, realizing, yes, this is for me. This is the day. And then, of course, being changed, realizing I'm a new creation, realizing the old had to go because the new was here to stay. All the different things in my life that I used to enjoy and love just really didn't have the same effect in my life, all areas of my life, and to be able to look towards what God had for me and see how He was able to replace those things that I enjoyed before I, I knew Jesus as my Savior to replace them with things that were of godly value or of spiritual value or of way of drawing me closer to Him. If you've never given up some things of your past because you're afraid that you'll never have them again, what will you do without them? God's got something for you in store down the road for this. You just got to let go of it and trust in God. I wonder what stage are you at this morning? Maybe you're joining us online and you're just beginning the stages. You're curious about Jesus. 
I encourage you to consider, consider Him and His ways, as well as looking, looking to find someone who can help you in that stage of, of, of consideration. Because there's probably a lot of questions, and you probably went through some questions yourself too when you went through that, wondering who this Jesus is, and you needed someone to come alongside you and explain it to you, kind of, kind of like in a Philip kind of way, explain the Scriptures to you. But maybe you're curious about who Jesus is. If you are, don't stop there. Investigate. Check him out up close by reading the Bible. Consider his claims. And that's what happened to me. I grabbed that Bible that I received when I was a fourth grader from some church in Portland. And I started reading through it. And what is, okay, Genesis, here we go. (laughs) Who is this God? What does he want with me? Keep coming to church. Keep attending online. Find a good Bible-preaching, God-believing church if you can't get to this one. But keep on coming. As you do, your next step then is, of course, to be converted. To realize, okay, I've learned all this. I've learned so much. I've got to make a decision. (laughs) I've got to decide. But that's why Jesus came. He came to convert you. And He seeks to save you. And He longs to show you His love. And then, of course, He will change your life in ways you can't even imagine. So is Jesus living within you? Or do you just let Him visit once in a while? If He has taken up residence, have you been denying Him access to some of the rooms in your life, maybe? Oh, sure, he, he might live with you, but he doesn't, he's not allowed to go in that one room of your life. Jesus is calling your name right now. The question is, will you respond? Will you abandon it all for Jesus? Will you surrender to Jesus everything? Lord Kenneth Clark, internationally known for his television series Civilization, admitted in his autobiography, that while visiting a beautiful church, he had an overwhelming religious experience. And this is what he wrote. My whole being was uh, irradiated by a kind of irradiated by a kind of heavenly joy far more intense than anything I had never known before. But as he described it, uh, the gloom of grace created a problem for him. If he allowed himself to be influenced by his spiritual yearnings, he knew he would have to change. And his family would think he had lost his mind. And so he concluded, I was too deeply embedded in the world to change. As far as we know, he may have died without putting his faith in Christ. That's not for us to judge. But it's for us to make sure in our own life, that we are ready. That we know Jesus as our Savior. That we realize that there does need to be change. And maybe you've traveled this road with Jesus for a while and you're realizing there's some things in your life that still need to change. That happens. The key is when, you, when, when new light is revealed to you from Scripture, from here from this, this pulpit, or in Sunday school class, or in your daily devotions that you respond to it in obedience. You go, 
oh, I didn't read that one before. I haven't heard that before. And that, that's truth. And that hurts. <laughs> but still, your response should be obedience. You're right, God. I do need to make a change. I do need to go this direction. Are you too deeply embedded in the world to change course? Sometimes that can happen. We get distracted. Zacchaeus was locked into a way of life that was pretty comfortable. He was, he was living pretty well. Yet Jesus changed him, and he can do the same for you as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us today and helping us see hopefully something different here in this familiar Sunday school story. But the thing is, is that's from your word and your word is living and active. And I trust, Lord, that as we've heard this already today, the story of Zacchaeus and his moment with the master, that there's something there that maybe we hadn't seen before. Maybe also too, Holy Spirit, you're tapping us on our shoulder saying there needs to be some change. Lord, if there, there's anyone here today that needs to respond to your promptings, maybe to the truth that has been expressed here today from your word, I pray that each one of us would respond in obedience. And for those who are joining us online, that response is easily done through prayer. <laughs> creating that opportunity right there to just be able to pray. And if there's anyone here today that needs to pray and do that, the altar is open. And also, you can just pray right there as well, too. God meets you where you're at. And I pray, Lord, that if there has been some revelation before us, that God, that you have exposed in our life or pointed out to us that we would agree with you and respond in obedience to that. So I thank you, Lord, that it's only a prayer way. I pray, Lord, that we would spend some time talking with you, having a little talk with you, getting some work done, allowing you to do a work in us to make that change. We love you, Lord, so very much, and thank you, Jesus, for speaking to our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Andy and the worship team are going to come on up. Lead us in a couple songs. And as we do, and maybe these songs will continue to point you towards Jesus and maybe some other things you haven't considered, uh, keep your heart open, your ears open, and uh, again, responding in obedience to what Jesus has for you.